Well, good evening. All right. Um, in 2001, the first movie of the Lord of the Rings trilogy was released to the public. The epic film entitled The Fellowship of the Ring was produced and based on the first novel of three written by J.R.R. Tolkien. The setting takes place in a fictional location called Middle Earth. And the plot of the movie centers around a dark lord named Sauron who seeks to regain a lost possession of his, a ring. And not just any ring, but a ring with unyielding power, power and evil too great to resist if fallen in the wrong hands. And if the dark lord Sauron reunites with this created ring of his, then the lands and the cities of Elves and dwarfs and hobbits and men will be ruled and conquered by this dark lord. After many years of the ring being lost, it is discovered by a hobbit named Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo, who is unaware of the ring's dark history, keeps it for himself before giving the ring to his nephew Frodo Baggins. The origin and the history of the ring is realized by a friend of Bilbo's, a wizard named Gandalf the Grey. And rightfully so, he quickly instructs Frodo to leave his home, the Shire, to escape any potential danger since the ring seems to be calling for its master. And the spirit of Sauron realizes that the ring of power is out in the open. He dispatches dark riders who will stop at nothing to reunite the ring to its rightful master. After a series of twists and turns, Frodo Baggins, he's reunited with Gandalf the Grey at the city of Rivendell. Now, of course, if you haven't seen this movie, you're not going to quite get the illustration, but uh, I would certainly encourage you to check out uh, this trilogy, for it is um, a great trilogy of movies based on these novels. At the city of Rivendell, there's this council that's formed to determine a course of action regarding the ring. And those included in the council are elves, dwarfs, men, hobbits, and Gandalf the wizard. Knowing the potential danger that this ring brings to the fate of all in attendance, it is determined that the ring must be destroyed in the fires of Mount Doom. But who will carry the ring To the fires of Mount Doom, since the journey is long and dangerous. A heated debate uh, in the council ensues as they attempt to decide on who is going, going to carry the ring to the fires of Mount Doom. In the midst of this heated exchange, an unlikely candidate rises to the occasion a hobbit, Frodo Baggins. Since he does not know the way to Mount Doom, eight others decide to come alongside Frodo to aid him in the mission of destroying the ring. And so these nine companions, a wizard, an elf, a dwarf, two men, and four hobbits, are known as the Fellowship of the Ring. They're known as the Fellowship of the Ring because these nine companions take part in a shared goal, a shared purpose a shared mission in seeking to destroy the evil ring of Sauron for the good of all who dwell in Middle-earth. In our text this evening, we're going to observe and read about 
a fellowship between John and the apostles, a fellowship centered around not a ring, but the second person of the Trinity, a fellowship that consists of John and the apostles and any who will receive their teaching regarding the eternal son of God in the flesh. In this fellowship centered around that which was from the beginning, the apostles and others share a common goal, a common purpose, and seeking to proclaim the truth regarding the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And their desire and hope is that we too would receive apostolic instruction and partake in the shared purpose and mission of proclaiming the true gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations, tribes, and tongues. Our main idea for this evening is this. The eternal son, the eternal life of the son is revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ so that believers may not only enjoy fellowship with one another, but also with God, the father and God, the son. And we're going to discuss three biblical truths that we can glean from our text this evening. One, the eternal life of the son is revealed to us in the person of Jesus Two. Believers possess fellowship with one another and with the Father and the Son. And three, our joy is rooted in the theology of the Son. If you haven't done so already, you can turn to the book of 1 John. I'm going to read aloud uh, the first four verses of chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Please join me in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you uh, for this evening. Lord, we thank you for... The word of God, the written word of God, we thank you for the living word of God, Lord. We thank you that in your grace and in your mercy and in your love for us, you sent your son, Jesus, to be the propitiation for our sins, Lord. Let us be reminded that you are light, you are love, and you have commanded us to love one another. Let us be reminded of your goodness, your faithfulness your awesomeness, your sovereignty, your righteousness and holiness, Lord God. Let us be reminded of your character and attributes as we think about uh, this text this evening, Lord God. Uh, May it just grow us not only in our affection of who you are, but in our worship and in our faithfulness and obedience to you and to the things of Christ. And so, Lord, we pray uh, for this evening, for our time together, that the Spirit would uh, give us understanding uh, in our text this evening. And may he provide uh, the courage to walk in the light as Christ is in the light. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The opening verses of this letter 
do not, typic, do not demonstrate the typical opening verses of other New Testament letters in which the author clearly identifies himself and the intended audience. Rather, the letter of 1 John begins much like the Gospel of John. For the opening two verses in the Gospel of John read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In verse 1 of our text this evening, we read, That which was from the beginning. This opening phrase in verse 1 certainly echoes and rings with the theological truths of the opening two verses in the Gospel of John. Who is it that John is referring to when he writes, That which was from the beginning? Well, John is directing uh, the attention of his readers to the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. This opening phrase carries the theological weight and truth of the opening verses of the Gospel of John regarding the Son's deity and His eternal nature. As we've been learning in our um, adult equip hour class on Sunday morning, God on Sunday mornings, God the Son is co-eternal and co-equal with God the Father. In the first two verses of 1 John, John's quick to point out that which is eternal, the word of life, the eternal life, which was with the Father in the beginning, was made manifest to us, us referring to John and the apostles. And this and that which was in the beginning was made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. For John writes, this eternal life was made manifest to us, and we have seen, we have heard, and we have touched that which was before time and matter and creation. The eternal life of the Son was revealed to John and the apostles in the life of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God taking on human flesh in the virgin birth. This is known as the Incarnation. John chapter 1, verse 14 reads, And the Word, the Lagos, God the Son became flesh and dwelt among us. Again, the us referring to John and other eyewitnesses. We have seen his glory, as John goes on to write in John chapter 1. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul writes in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The author of Hebrews writes, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So not only do we see John affirming the timeless truth of the eternal nature of the second person of the Trinity, he also reminds his readers of the humanity of Jesus. For he writes... For we have seen that which was from the beginning. We have heard the word of life. We have touched God the Son in the flesh. For John knows and believes without a shadow of doubt that the Lord Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. In the Bible, Jesus is given certain titles or names that direct us to his deity and his humanity. For example, Jesus is described as the creator of all things. 
He's also known as the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty One. He is the only begotten, eternally begotten from the Father. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is the true God, as John states at the end of this letter in chapter 5. These titles indicate and affirm his deity or his divinity. Titles such as the offspring or the seed of the woman, the son of David, the second Adam, our great high priest. These titles point us to the humanity of Jesus. Now, of course, there are certainly many more titles of Jesus that that are uh, riddled throughout the Bible that point us to his humanity and deity. But we need to know and believe that the eternal Son of God has has been revealed or manifested to John and the other apostles in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man as John testifies in his gospel and here in his letter. Not only do we need to be reminded of Jesus' divinity and his humanity, we also need to be reminded of his authority and his supremacy over all things. I like what John writes in chapter 3 of his gospel. He says, That which comes from above is above all. That which comes from heaven is above all. Or in other words, that which is eternal is above all. All of creation. And John continues in chapter 3 that Jesus, God the Son, bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. In our opening verses, John appeals to his audience that he and the other apostles are eyewitnesses of God the Son in the flesh. What's interesting is that the eternal Son of God is also an eyewitness, for he also bears witness to what he has seen and heard. So God the Son is an eyewitness of whom? God the Father. John and the apostles testify to and proclaim to their audience God the Son in the flesh. Just as Jesus testifies to and proclaims to the people the words of God the Father. Since God the Son comes from God the Father, eternally begotten from the Father, as we've been learning on Sunday mornings, it makes logical sense for us when Jesus says, Look, if you do not receive my words or my testimony, then you do not receive or accept the words of God the Father. For God the Son and God the Father are one. Similarly, the Apostle John writes, If you do not receive our testimony or our instruction regarding God the Son in the flesh, then you do not receive or accept the words of God the Son, which is ultimately a denial of God the Father. So as I've been thinking on these particular verses and the rest of 1 John, I was reminded of the importance of understanding the person and nature of Jesus Christ accurately and biblically. In our time together on Sunday mornings uh, in the adult Sunday school class with Dr. Matthew Barrett and our own Dr. Jason Alligan, 
We're certainly being reminded of the importance of understanding the doctrine of the Trinity accurately and biblically. Our Christology is what separates us from other major religions of this world. And if we hold to a faulty understanding of the Trinity or a faulty, a faulty understanding of the second person of the Trinity, then we fall into the quicksand of heresy rather quickly. And ultimately, we lose the doctrine of salvation. So just as the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon recognized the great importance of understanding the persons of the Godhead accurately and biblically as to battle against heresy, so does the Apostle John in his writings. He knows full well that a proper understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ is not only foundational to our practical theology, but it's also a dividing line between falsehood and truth. Look at what John states in, in chapter 4 of this letter, verses 2 and 3. He writes, By this you know the Spirit of God, capital S there, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. He goes on to write in verse 6 of chapter 4. He says, We, the apostles, are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John also writes, if you turn a couple pages to 2 John, he writes in 2 John, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. He goes on in verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And, and whose teaching is John referring to? Well, he's, he's referring to the teaching that he received from that which was from the beginning. The eternal life which was made manifest to John and the apostles. And in verse 10, John states, uh, still in, in 2 John here, he states, If anyone comes to you, and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So, I mean, John here is certainly showing us the importance of knowing truth. right? And he certainly um, holds to uh, a right understanding, a, a, a right truth regarding the eternal Son of God. If our understanding of the person and nature of Jesus Christ is faulty, or if our understanding is not in alignment with apostolic teaching, then we do not have fellowship with John or the other apostles. And as a result, we do not have fellowship with God the Son. John's writings and his letters and, of course, his gospel and revelation, they're deeply theological regarding the person and work of Christ. And he knows the great importance of sound doctrine since it greatly influences our obedience or our practical theology.
theology. So as believers and followers of the Lord Jesus, living in this current day and age, we must be committed to an accurate and biblical understanding of the Scriptures. And as we work through the letter of 1 John, we will be reminded of the importance of right doctrine and right practice. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to be committed to an accurate and biblical understanding of who Jesus is. How do we do that? Well, we study our Bibles. We study historical theology. We study systematic theology, the things that we've been discussing on Sunday mornings regarding the doctrine of the Trinity. Although maybe difficult, although those things may be difficult and challenging to wrap our minds around, as Jason mentioned this morning, it's, it's good for us to be challenged in these areas and to ponder and meditate on these truths. So John, uh, in his letter... Um, And at the time of this letter, I think he's certainly up against false teaching regarding the humanity and deity of Jesus. And he seeks to rightly instruct and to teach fellow believers the truth regarding the person of Christ. In fact, two heresies the early church fought uh, fought against was Docetism and Gnosticism, which basically denied the full humanity of Jesus. And if Jesus is not fully human, then he cannot fully atone for our sins. If Jesus is not fully human, then he did not truly suffer, nor did he die for our sins. He fails to be our substitutionary sacrifice if he is not fully human. For the author of Hebrews writes, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The biblical view is that the eternal life of the Son is revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And the person of Jesus is both fully God and fully man. So again, our biblical truth number one for this evening The eternal life of the Son is revealed to us in the person of Jesus. Let's pick up the text here again in chapter 1 of 1 John, looking at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Biblical truth number 2 from our text Believers possess fellowship with one another and with the Father and the Son. So we see here in verse 3 that John indicates an initial reason for why he is proclaiming the message of the eternal Son of God. He says, so that his audience may have fellowship with him and the other apostles. According to the New International Commentary on the New Testament, fellowship renders a Greek word which literally means having in common. So what is it that John seeks to have in common with his audience? Well, it certainly seems to be a common doctrine or a shared understanding regarding that which was from the beginning. The term fellowship, I mean, certainly suggests a relational component as well. But I think 
More importantly, it certainly suggests that we share non-negotiable truths and beliefs regarding the person and work of Christ. And the letter of 1 John contains many timeless truths and beliefs that John seeks to have in common with his audience. So what is it that John seeks to have in common? This shared understanding, the shared belief regarding the person of Christ? Well, here are a few of those timeless truths and beliefs that we're going to be covering over the next uh, many weeks as we work through the letter of 1 John. So I want to share some of those with you here. Uh, Number one, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, fully God and fully human. Number two, John seeks to have a shared understanding with his audience that if you believe in the name of the Son of God, then know that you have eternal life. Three, John seeks to to share a common belief, a common understanding that if you receive and believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God in the flesh, then God abides in you and you in God. That's from 1 John 4, verse 15. John goes, goes on to state in 1 John chapter 2, If you deny the Son, then you deny the Father as well. For whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Another shared belief or a shared truth regarding the person and work of Christ. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He goes on to write in Uh, Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 5. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Another truth that we're going to see here from a timeless truth. Another timeless truth that we're going to see here from 1 John chapter 4. Is that the eternal life of the Son was sent by the Father. And the eternal life of the Son who was sent by the Father, took on human flesh to be the propitiation for our sins. At the end of uh, this letter, in in chapter 5, John writes, Jesus is the true God and eternal life. And he also goes on to write, and I think he seeks again to, to share or to have in common this shared belief, this fellowship Surrounding the person and work of Christ, that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, has been born of God. And everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, John says in chapter 5, our faith. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a shared faith. We have a shared victory because of Christ's victory over sin and death. These biblical truths found throughout John's letter ought to provide us with great hope and encouragement for living faithfully and obediently to the commands of Scripture. So again, our biblical truth number two is that believers in the Lord Jesus possess fellowship with one another and with the Father and with the Son. Now, if John's recipients of this letter share a common faith, a saving faith regarding the person and work of Christ, and their association or fellowship is not only with John and the apostles, but also with God the Father and God the Son. 
It's a package deal. For all who receive the Son also receive the Father. If anyone denies the Son, then they deny the Father as well. Jesus states in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. He goes on to state, and Jesus goes on to state in John chapter 13, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Right? And, John, and Jesus, of course, is sending out John and the apostles. Right? So whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me, this is Jesus speaking, receives the one who sent me. And I think this is, of course, why John can state in this letter, he says, we are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And I think he's making that claim because of the words of Christ, because of the teachings of Christ. In other words, if you receive right, our instruction, this is apostolic instruction and, and, and teaching, then you are receiving and accepting the testimony of God regarding his son. John and the apostles have been sent by Jesus to proclaim his message in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we too, we must seek to proclaim and testify to the message of that which was from the beginning, to a world that desperately needs to know that there is life, eternal life found in the Son of God. In verse 4, John writes, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This leads us to biblical truth number three, that our joy is rooted in the theology of the Son. In this verse, John provides another reason as to why he is writing these things. He says, so that our joy may be complete. And what are these things that he is writing about? Well, these things indicate the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That which they have seen, that which they have heard, that which they have touched. And what about this joy John is referring to? I think it's interesting that He says, we're writing these things so our joy may be complete. I certainly think John takes on a pastoral concern or spirit in this letter and his second and third letter as well. So as we kind of think through this joy, right, he's writing these things so our joy may be complete. Let's think about that for a moment and let's imagine that we are eyewitnesses of the eternal Son of God, just like John and the apostles. A word of life revealed to us in the person of Jesus. And so let's travel back in time to imagine that we are witnessing his miracles, his speech, his compassion, his mercy, his love, his care for the people. Let's imagine that we're at the wedding in in Cana, witnessing this celebration rejoicing with friends and family of the bride and the groom. Some of you were just at a wedding yesterday. Imagine the sights, the sounds, the noise of celebration. Imagine the worry or concern that Mary, the mother of Jesus, had for the host family when the wine ran out. 
And now imagine the joy of the people upon the news of the master of the feast when he proclaims, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Imagine that we hear and witness the words of Jesus to the man who, who had been an invalid for 38 years. And we hear the words of Jesus when he says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the invalid whom you have known for many years to be paralyzed begins to walk freely as if he had never been paralyzed before. Imagine your thoughts. Imagine your wonder and awe, what you might be feeling. Imagine your shock or joy or amazement in witnessing this miracle. Imagine that you were there when Jesus resurrected the dead man, Lazarus, knowing that he had been dead for four days. And you witness and you see and you hear Jesus looking up to the heavens and saying, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And with a loud voice, you hear Jesus say, Lazarus, come out. Imagine your amazement and wonder. As you ponder these things and you witness these things. Imagine being an eyewitness, seeing Jesus hanging on the cross, hearing the words, it is finished. Think about what you may be thinking and processing as the body of Jesus lies in the tomb. Think about your joy and amazement and awe when you see and touch the resurrected body of Jesus, walking and talking with him as if he had never died. Imagine that we can claim, as John and the other apostles do, that which we have seen with our, eye, our eyes, that which we have looked upon, that which we have touched, that which we have seen and heard. So if we are eyewitnesses of the life of Christ, we're writing this letter to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, as John is doing here in 1 John. Think for a moment, what would make our joy complete? Well, I think our, our joy is sharing a common doctrine, a shared belief, a shared conviction regarding that which was from the beginning. And that which was revealed to us. Think about the joy that you may have in sharing this conviction, this belief regarding the person and work of Christ and regarding some of the timeless truths that we talked about in the letter of First John. Especially the one regarding eternal life. What if you... And maybe you do. You have a lost family member, a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, a son, or a daughter. Would there not be great joy in, in sharing a shared belief and conviction regarding the person and work of Christ? In a shared 
joy in knowing that this lost family member has now been rescued from the power of sin and darkness. And we share this common belief, this common truth that they now have eternal life. Our joy is certainly rooted in the theology of the revealed Son of God. Rooted in what He has accomplished for us in His life, His death, and His resurrection. The shared joy for John and the apostles is that their audience receive their teaching and then know with confidence and assurance that they have eternal life. Not only is our joy rooted in the theology of the Son, as if we're writing this letter, but it would also be rooted in our shared desire for other believers to walk in obedience and faithfulness to the word of life. Think about the joy that you have as a parent when you have a believing son or daughter walking in the light. Walking in the light. As Christ walked. That ought to give us great joy as a parent. Uh, As a pastor, elder here at Fellowship Bible Church. And certainly I think I can speak for the other pastors and elders. That it would give us great joy when we see our members walking in the light. Walking in faithfulness and obedience to the commands of Scripture. So John states in his third letter, why don't you turn a couple pages to his third letter. I think it's there at the beginning. I don't have the verse number for you. But he says, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy, says John, than to hear that my children are walking in. In the truth. He also states in his second letter, if you want to flip back to your, the second letter, I know there's been a lot of flipping around, but it's not too far to go. He says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. So I certainly think we see this shared joy, this joy that John is talking about. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Because his desire, his conviction, is not only would we believe the truths regarding the eternal Son of God, the Word of life, that which which was made manifest to us, that which was revealed to us in the person of Christ, but also... That if we're going to have uh, fellowship with John and the, and the apostles, therefore God the Father and God the Son, then we're going to walk in the light. We're going to walk in truth. And so I certainly think that we see this pastoral concern, this pastoral spirit, and that John is exhorting and, and encouraging his readers to walk in the truth. And we're going to see that in the verses and chapters ahead. And in fact, in John chapter 2 of 1 John, he writes, Whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Jesus states in John chapter 15, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. 
Our joy is rooted in the theology of the Son and in our faithfulness and obedience to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. John chapter 15, uh, if you're familiar with that chapter, Jesus is saying, look, I am the vine, you are the branches. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And he goes on to say in that same chapter, verse 8, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. At the beginning of our time together, I mentioned that nine companions shared a common goal or a common mission to destroy the ring of Sauron in the fires of Mount Doom. As believers, we must seek to be united and and committed in the shared mission of proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus to the ends of the earth for his glory and for the good of others. As the nine companions in the fellowship of the ring risk their lives for a common purpose, a shared goal, we too must be willing to risk our lives, risking the safety and comfort of our homes for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. We cannot afford to remain silent regarding the person and work of Christ since the message of Christ offers eternal life for all those who would turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in Christ for their salvation. We must proclaim the biblical Jesus to a lost and fallen world so that they too may have fellowship with us and that our joy would be made complete. For we are eyewitnesses by faith and we need to be united in the shared mission, the shared purpose, the shared goal of making disciples for his glory and for the good of others. If you are a non-believer here this evening, we urge you to repent and believe in the person and work of Christ. Not only is repentance a change of conduct, but it's also a change of mind. Believing in Jesus as the eternal word of God, God in the flesh, fully man and fully God, sent by the Father to be the Savior of the world. Trust in Him alone for your salvation, and you will receive the gift of eternal life. John writes at the end of his letter here in 1 John in chapter 5, he says, This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. If you are here tonight and you are resistant to the biblical truths of the Bible, then you are resistant resistant to the things of Christ. And if you are resistant to the person and work of Christ, then you are resistant to God the Father. For no one who denies the Son has the Father. So if you have questions or concerns regarding repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then please come talk to me or another brother, pastor, elder here at the close of our time together. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening, Lord. We thank you for our time together and we thank you for the many biblical truths and timeless truths that we see here in the letter of 1 John, Lord. Lord, thank you for the hope and the encouragement and the assurance of eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you 
sent your son to be the savior of the world, to be the propitiation for our sins, Lord. We're thankful and grateful for his life, his death, his resurrection, his perfect obedience, Lord God. And Lord, let us be united, Lord, in the shared belief, the shared trust, the shared faith regarding the person and work of Christ. And let us, Lord, seek to risk it all for fulfilling the Great Commission, Lord, that you would give us boldness and courage to go out and to share the gospel here locally in our families, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, Lord God. So, Lord, we thank you for tonight. Help us as we go on this week to walk in the light, Lord God, to abide in the things of Christ and to bear fruit for your glory and for the good of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you, dear ones, for your time and attention.